Welcome to you. Welcome to RUF. Um, we're so glad to have you here with us this evening. My name is John Bourgeois, and I'm the campus minister here at Wake Forest. And uh, as Preston said so well, um, RUF is a place uh, that we want to be safe for you if you're convinced or you're unconvinced. If you're convinced Christian, or even if you're convinced skeptic, or if you're unconvinced, if you're not sure what you believe, um, we hope that this is a place where you can um, figure that out, where you can ask questions of who God is and what the Bible claims and um, figure out um, who Jesus is and how you fit into that. Um, and one of the fundamental questions of Christianity and um, of humanity is who is Jesus? Right? We've got many answers to this question. Um, Jesus is the most popular, most recognized, most cited, most admired, most controversial figure in human history. More books have been written about him than any person who's ever lived. Um, he is unavoidable in history. John Lennon, when he was describing how big the Beatles were, he could think of no one else to compare to but Jesus when he said that the Beatles are, bi or the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. Um, Napoleon allegedly said that Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires, but on what foundation do we rest our creations of our genius? We rested them upon force. And Jesus Christ founded an empire upon love, and at this hour millions of men would die for him. Every religion in the world, Christian or not, has to factor in some appraisal of Jesus, who he is, whether it's to honor him as one of God's prophets or as an enlightened man or to reject him as a false prophet or to hail him as king of the universe. So who is Jesus? Um, and today we have lots of different pictures of Jesus. Uh, there's the buddy Jesus. If you've seen Dogma, you know it's Jesus with a wink and a smile and his thumbs out, um, kind of like hippie Jesus. Another Jesus we see is the Aryan portrait Jesus. Maybe your grandmother has a portrait picture of him on, your, on her wall or in church. You know what I'm talking about, like the blonde hair with the halo and it kind of looks like he's wearing makeup. Um, you know, there's uh, Jesus as, as Islam understands him, that he's a prophet. In the Quran, it actually speaks of Jesus and, it, and Jesus speaks and he says... Um, I'm a servant of Allah. He's given me revelation and made me a prophet. And just a prophet. That's what Islam claims. Um, or if you saw the Ole Miss and Alabama football game on Saturday night, uh, he was the expletive, or the expletive that came out of Nick Saban's mouth at the end there where um, Alabama lost, right? So Jesus has takes on all these different forms. Um, and everyone is asking this question, who is Jesus? Richard Dawkins, who's a well-known Oxford, Oxford professor, um, he wrote a book called The God Delusion. Um, he's part of this movement called the New Atheist Movement. He said this. He said, Jesus was a great moral teacher. This was in an interview in 2011. And he said, somebody as intelligent as Jesus would have been an atheist if he had known what we know today. So who is Jesus? Um, C.S. Lewis, who was an author and professor in the 20th century, he taught at Cambridge. At one point, he was agnostic, and then he became a Christian. In his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this about Jesus. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. And then Lewis adds, You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So who is Jesus? This is a question that he actually asked his closest disciples. Um, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And as you can see from these examples, this is a question that um, unites us and also a question that divides us. Um, And a question that demands an answer from each of us. Jesus asking, who do you say that I am? This is a question that um, everyone in human history has to deal with. Um, And how you answer this question will shape your life. Who is Jesus? Well, the testimony of the Bible and of the church throughout the past 2,000 years um, is that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is fully man and Jesus is fully God. Well, this semester, uh, in large group, what we're doing together here at RUF is we're looking at the book of Colossians together. Um, And so far, our time together this semester, uh, our first week together, I answered the question, what is RUF? And we said that RUF is a place where together we are struggling, wrestling under the authority of Scripture. Um, We're seeing the mechanism of God's grace at work in our lives, and we're looking at God to produce peace in our lives. In the second week, we talked about what is the gospel, and we heard from Colossians that the gospel is the good news of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. And that the gospel is bearing fruit in the world. And last week, as we looked at Colossians, we saw that um, we, asked, we asked the question, what is God's will for my life? And we saw from Colossians that God's will for our lives is that we would grow in knowledge and wisdom. And we would grow in thankfulness for what it is that God has done for us in Jesus. And this week, um, Paul, as he's writing Colossians, brings us to this question. Who is Jesus? Um, and in writing this letter to the church at Colossae, this young church, um, Paul is writing because he has this desire to see them mature, to see them grow up, um, to see them become more like Christ. And so the first 23 verses of the first chapter, which we're covering through tonight, um, culminates with this poem, which we're going to read. And this poem um, is answering the question, who is Jesus? So if you turn in your bulletins with me, um, your Bible, if you've got them, we're going to read from Colossians 1, 15 through 23. This is the word of God for us tonight. God gives it to us because he loves us. Starting in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might pre- be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, we thank you that um, you are with us by your spirit. Um, Thank you for these songs that we've sung and this time that we have together. And we pray now that you would help us as we read your word together. Um, Help me as I speak. Uh, Would you help us to see Jesus and to make sense um, of this passage and where we fit into it. We pray that you would do this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So before I start with this passage, I just want to say one disclaimer about this. Um, The age that we live in, which many philosophers have dubbed post-modernity or post-modernism, have you all come across this phrase? Um, uh, It's been defined by a French philosopher as as its defining characteristic being that we have an incredulity towards meta-narratives. An incredulity towards meta-narratives. What this means is that we as a culture are skeptical of, are unwilling to believe anything that claims to be or do everything. I'll say that again. We're skeptical of anything that claims to be or to do everything. Um, And there's a handful of different ways that I could invite you to consider this passage because that's what this passage is, right? It is this cosmic scope of saying who Jesus is. Um, And I'm going to ask you to consider it this way. Um, Ask you to set aside your incredulity for the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Um, And I want you to do it this way. Imagine you're meeting a person for the first time and you getting to know them on their terms rather than coming with your own expectations. I mean, if you've ever had this before where you go into a meeting someone and you've got these expectations, you're expecting them to be an egomaniac or you're expecting them to be a jerk or um, whatever it is, and then you spend time with them and afterwards you're like, oh, man, I thought you were awful when we first... Has this ever happened to you? People have said this to me. Man, when we first met, I mean, I thought you were awful, but now I think you're a great guy. It's like, why did you think... You know, but that happens when we meet people. Um, And so I'd ask as we come to this text, if you're um, skeptical of this, would you... um, be so kind as to lay that aside and see what it is that, uh, that this text has to say to us about who it is that Jesus is. Um, so that you can answer this question for yourself. Who is Jesus? Not based on what you feel or what others have said, but what the Bible says about him. And here, Paul is telling the church in Colossae that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he is the one in whom all things hold together. He's the image of the invisible God, and he's the one who, in whom all things hold together. Those are my two points for my talk tonight. So first, he's the image of the invisible God. Um, looking at verse 15, answering the question that we all have, what is God like? How can I know God? Paul is saying, look at Jesus, and you'll see God. I've heard it put this way. If you're sitting in a room, and there's a person in the next room, Um, You can't see them because there's a wall in the way. But if there's a mirror in the hallway, you know, I might be able to look in that mirror and see a mirror image of the person who's in the next room. And that's what Paul is saying happens when we look at Jesus. And we're looking into this mirror and we're seeing um, the image of God. And what does Jesus show us about who God is? Well, as you read the Gospels, um, the records of Jesus' life in the New Testament, you get this full picture of of who Jesus is. And perhaps one thing stands out more than any other, and that is that Jesus is full of love. 
Um, Jesus is the expression of God's love for the world. His love for his creation embodied and enacted in Jesus. Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, perfectly related to all people. We see this especially in how Jesus related to the least and the lost and the left out. His ministry was marked by seeing people and then having compassion on them. Matthew 15 records the scene in the middle of Jesus' ministry where after healing a Canaanite woman's daughter, he went up the side of a mountain and sat down, and great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others, and they put them at Jesus' feet, and Jesus healed them. And Paul is saying, look at this man, and in him you see the invisible God. And this phrase, image of God, is one that actually finds its origin in the first chapter of the Bible. Um, When God is creating all things and creating humans, as a pinnacle of his creation, he says, let us create man in our own image. And male and female, he created them. And we're told that humans exist to image God to the world. That God wanted to set up images of himself around the earth so that the earth might see, all creation might see who God is. Um, And that's what we are as humans. God has made us in his image to show the world his glory. But we don't function in that capacity. We don't function in the way that we're designed to. Um, Shortly after God made humans and placed them in the garden in Eden to mirror or reflect his image to the world, um, they chose to reflect their own image, to put themselves first, to tilt the mirror in the hall away from the other room and have it reflect their own image back to themselves. And the Bible calls this sin. And their sin, our first parent's sin, is our sin. Rather than reflecting God's image to the world, we've selfishly grabbed that mirror off the wall and tried to reflect anything other than God to the world. Um, But the story doesn't end there. God, in his grace, knew the only way to restore his people as his images would be to send his son as an image bearer into the world. And not only to enter into the world, as Jesus did, but to be destroyed by the world. Because it's only as he was shattered on the cross that we are able to be restored as image bearers. And Paul is saying that the image of God, what we were created for as humans, is seen perfectly in Jesus. That he is the true and perfect human. And then we're given a complimentary statement in verse 19, um, where Paul says that for in Jesus the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That not only is Jesus the image of God, the true and perfect human, but God fully dwelt in him, that he is fully God. Later in Matthew, Matthew 17, um, we're given the story of Jesus with his close friends, Peter, James, and John. And they go up to a high mountain, and we're told that there, on that mountaintop, Jesus is transfigured. And what this means is that he was transformed. His, light sh- his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as, and white as light. Um, and we're told that the Spirit appeared as a bright cloud all around them, and that God the Father spoke out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Another way of saying this is that Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God. And... Paul tells us that he is the one in whom all things hold together. Verse 16 says, By him all things were created, all things were created through him and for him. 
all of creation, all things, in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible. What's left? Nothing, right? This is entire, this is the scope of what Paul's saying about Jesus is everything, all things. And just in case we're not sure that it's all things, he adds this phrase that it's thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that all of those as well were made by Jesus. Um, what are thrones, rulers, dominions, authorities? Um, this is language, it's unfamiliar to us, but this is actually like kingdom language. Thrones are centralized structures of political, economic, and military power. Um, as you think of a king sits on the throne of a particular empire. Dominions are the realms over which these rulers would exercise their sovereignty. And then rulers are those who sit on the thrones and rule over the dominions. And then the authorities are the laws or sanctions or permissions that undergird the, undergird the everyday exercise of power. So Paul's saying all of it. Every power structure, every empire, all of it was created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And Paul goes on to say that he was before all things, and in him old things hold together, and all things are reconciled to God through him. And if you examine the structure of this passage, which we're not going to do um, in detail, you see that it's in fact a beautiful poem. Um, and what is Paul doing in this poem? Well, the moment that he made references to the image of God, firstborn and beginning, this is in verse 18. Everyone in the first century who heard these words would immediately know that he was contrasting Jesus with Caesar. The Roman Empire was filled with inscriptions of who Caesar was. Now, this is before modern advertising, so the way people broadcasted or advertised things was by chiseling them into stone. So everywhere you went, you would see and read these phrases inscribed, inscribed on walls and archways of every building in the Roman Empire. And so it's covered with these inscriptions about Jesus, saying that he was the image of God and the firstborn in the beginning, um, that he was equal to the beginning of all things, that Caesar was the one who restored order, that he was the beginning of life and vitality, that Caesar was savior, the one who put an end to war. These are all things that they've actually found as they've dug up um, artifacts all over the Ro where the Roman Empire extended. These are things that were written and inscribed about Caesar. Um, that he set all things in order. That he proclaimed, he was proclaimed as God manifest. God in the flesh. And adding to this, um, Paul uses this image of head and body, talking about Jesus and the church, which would have immediately conjured up ideas of both Greek, the Greek ideas of Zeus as the sovereign head of the body of the cosmos, and images of Caesar or Rome as the head of the political body of the empire. And what is Paul doing with this? He's taken these images that would have been common to all people, and he flips them on their head. And he replaces Zeus and Caesar and Rome and any other false lord or myth or kingdom, and he replaces them with Christ. And he takes us a step further, and he replaces the body, whether it be the entirety of the cosmos or the empire, and he replaces it with the church. Paul is giving us this totalizing vision of who Jesus is in the grandest and most far-reaching sense possible. So who is Jesus? We see that he is the image of the invisible God, and all things were made by him, exist for him, and hold together in him. So what does this mean for us? Right? What does this mean for us? Well, as I was thinking about this passage this week, I couldn't help but reflect on how often we live like this isn't true. And the evidence of that is our anxiety. Who here has been anxious this semester? All right, yeah, right? 
Um, I know I have. And um, what is anxiety? What is anxiety? Anxiety is the experience of trying to make all things hold together somewhere other than Jesus. I'll say that again. Anxiety is the experience of trying to make all things hold together in some place other than Jesus. Um, anxiety is like needing to carry a gallon of milk from your car to your dorm, but your milk jug has a bunch of little holes poked in it, and you're just trying to get your milk to your fridge before it all leaks out. Or it's like carrying two babies that are covered in baby oil, and then someone throws you a third baby. <laughs> right? That would make you anxious. Um, anxiety is that freight train that is barreling through your chest, and you have no idea how to make it stop. Or to borrow an old illustration, anxiety is like putting all of your eggs into one basket, only to discover that that basket is too small, and it's falling apart, so your eggs fall out, and your basket is in danger of breaking. Anxiety is the experience of trying to make all things hold together somewhere other than in Jesus. Um, And psychologists convene regularly to discuss how to categorize anxiety disorders, and they have um, seven categories of of the different anxiety disorders that we experience as humans, everything from panic disorder to social phobia, um, post-traumatic stress, obsessive-compulsive disorder. And at the risk of being simplistic, um, I want to say that there are two primary forms of anxiety that we experience, that you all experience here at Wake. Um, And just to say, if anxiety, if this is something that you experience, it's a repeating pattern in your life, and you haven't told anyone about it, um, please come and talk to me. I would love to connect you with a counselor or somebody who can help you to process um, your anxiety. But I'd say that there's two forms of anxiety that are common to all of us here at Wake, um, all of you especially here at Wake. Um, And um, in putting all your eggs in this one basket... Uh, if that basket breaks, everything will fall apart. That's what I'm saying. What are the common anxieties? What are the places that you're trying to put all your eggs and everything will fall apart if that basket breaks? So the first is the academic or success basket. And it goes something like this, right? I need the right major so that I can have the right career so I can have a secure future. So if I fail that test, then I won't be able to major in this and my future will be ruined. Or, for some of you, if I fail that test, then I won't be able to major in this, and then my parents will be sorely disappointed in me. I put all of my eggs in the academic success basket, and if that basket breaks, then everything will fall apart. The other basket that I'd say um, I feel this too is the basket, the social basket. I made that bad joke. I was awkward. Or people found out that I hooked up with so-and-so. Or made some bad decisions and people found out about them and are talking, which that would then lead to those people won't like me, which then leads to they won't invite me into their group or their fraternity or their sorority, which then leads to I'm a social outcast. Right? I put all my eggs in the social basket, and if that basket breaks, everything will fall apart. Right? And this creates anxiety in us because you're trying to put the weight of your life you're all things into something that can't hold it together. And only Jesus can hold the weight of your life. Only Jesus can hold the weight of your future. Because it's only in him that all things hold together. 
Your academics, your success, your relationships, your social life, they can't hold all things. And if you try to make all things hold together there, the baskets will break and everything will fall apart. Now, some of y'all know what this feels like. Um, Last night, Mary Clark and I were watching Netflix, not chilling, just watching Netflix. Um, And you know what that means if you're laughing. Um, And we were watching the show Luther. I lost all of you guys, didn't I? I just totally lost all of y'all. All right, relax. Um, We're watching the show Luther, which is a BBC cop drama. um, And uh, the opening scene of season two of Luther is this guy, John Luther, who's a police officer. And he's getting dressed. He's getting ready for his day of work. He... He puts on his tie. He puts on his coat. He gets out his revolver, and he loads a single bullet in the chamber, and then he sits down on his sofa. He spins the chamber of his revolver, and he puts it up to his head, and he pulls the trigger. This is the beginning of his day. Trigger goes click. um, No bullet is fired, and he gets up, and he goes to work. He starts his day playing Russian roulette. Why? Why? Because the basket where he put all of his eggs, all of his things, all things was himself. And he lived like all things hold together in himself. And he couldn't do it. And he broke and he fell apart. And that's what happens when we try to make all things hold together in ourselves. We fall apart. The good days are the days when the gun doesn't go off, right? And we don't talk about the bad days. And here is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and all things hold together in Jesus, even you. Look at verse 21 and 22. Paul writes, In you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Y'all, it's not about putting all your eggs in the right basket. It's not about trying to make all things hold together in a particular place. It's about seeing that Jesus is the place where all things hold together and letting your basket break in him. Because all things hold together in Jesus, you can fall apart in him and he will put you back together. Well, how? How do I fall apart in Jesus? How do I trust him with my broken basket and my broken eggs? Look at the cross. It's there that Jesus has reconciled to himself all things, making peace by his own blood. It's there that he was broken. He was shattered. It's there that he fell apart so that in him you can be held together. So if anxiety is the refrain of your song tonight, if you have a broken basket filled with broken eggs, if your everyday feels a little bit too much like Russian roulette, hear this word from the throne of heaven that God himself speaks to you. All things hold together in Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, God has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that this is who Jesus is, that you give us this cosmic vision of your son, 
and that it's true that all things hold together in him. Lord, would you help us that we would trust him with our all things, that we would fall apart in him and trust him to put us back together. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.